Well, it's so good to see you tonight, and um, I am really looking forward to speaking this evening. I titled the message tonight, We've Met the Enemy, and I think the uh, real famous pogo strip that Walt Kelly did, We Have Met the Enemy, and it is us, yeah. And that's what I kind of think of when I read about the Sardis Church and what we learn from this passage. Sometimes we can be our own worst enemy, and sometimes we don't even realize that we've been our enemy. In this passage tonight, it's not going to be like some of the other passages we've read. There's not any false apostles. There's not any persecution of the church. There's not some of the other challenges that the other churches have been facing. Matter of fact, it's one of, to me, it's one of the more interesting letters. I, I grew up off of a church, off of a street named, a road out in the country named Sardis Church Road. And every time I read this, I can't help think about Sardis Church Road. And there really was a church on that road called the Little Church in the Wildwoods. And so I just, there's so many things come to my mind. But I want you to stand out of respect and reverence for the word of the Lord tonight as we read just the first six verses about this particular church. Write this letter to the angel of the church in Sardis, and we've established that the angel, the word angel means messenger. It could be pastor, it could be uh, an angel, I believe, context that this is all about the pastors of the church, but I definitely believe in the supernatural presence of angels with us. I just drove straight in from the hospital praying with someone and just giving God thanks that even in that room of sadness and sorrow, there's the presence of God's holy angels that are there. But the way this letter is written, it just dials it up a little bit more for why this isn't the supernatural beings that are being addressed, but it's the pastor of this church that's being addressed. Write the letter to the angel of the church in Sardis. This is the message from the one who has the sevenfold spirit of God and the seven stars. I know all the things you do, and you have a reputation for being alive, but you are dead. Wake up. Strengthen what little remains, for even what is left is almost dead. I find that your actions do not meet the requirements of my God. Go back to what you heard and believed at first. Hold to it firmly and repent and turn to me again. If you don't wake up, I'll come to you suddenly as unexpected as a thief. Yet there are some in the church in Sardis, there's always a remnant. There are some in the church in Sardis who have not soiled their clothes with evil. They will walk with me in white for they are worthy. And all who are victorious will be clothed in white, and I will never erase their names from the book of life. But I will announce before my Father and his angels that they are mine. Anyone with ears to hear must listen to the Spirit and understand what he is saying to the churches. Our Father in heaven, we approach this passage like we do every passage in the word of the Lord. We humble ourselves before you and we ask you for the ministry of the Holy Spirit to give us insight and discernment. We ask you for the gift of preaching and teaching tonight that will illuminate our hearts and instruct and counsel our souls. And we ask you, Lord, that you will give us ears that will hear and obey and that, Lord, we will take action immediately. We ask you to strengthen, Lord, our church. Strengthen, Lord, Woodland. We are your church. We are your people, Lord. And we pray for revival, not only for Woodland, but, Lord, for churches all around the world. We pray for an outpouring of your Holy Spirit tonight. For I ask all of this in the name of Jesus Christ. And everyone said, Amen. God bless you. You can be seated tonight. Like I said, this is a very unique letter, and it's also to a very unique town. 
Sardis was, uh, as a matter of fact, you can go online if you're interested. I'll send you a web link where you can go online and actually get drone flyovers of, of the city of Sardis, the ancient city of Sardis. Actually, the city's still there today. It's called Sart. But when you come into Sardis, you'll see on one side, you'll see this huge mountain, uh, which was a necropolis. Necropolis was not just the Parthenon on top of uh, a mountain in Greece, but Acropolis was the high point. It was the highest point in the valley. And so often cities were built upon these high points, but they were often in the ancient days, and you have some, I've been to one in Scotland, uh, you have necropolises, which that word means city of the dead. And if you've ever heard some of the churches that use the liturgical uh, prayer books when they do a funeral, there's, there's one of the services that will say, we've come to the city of the dead or the necropolis. And what happened was they built upon the, the, this tall hill, this giant hill, and it's absolutely stunning to watch this drone photography. But you can also see across the way, you can see the necropolis. And that's important to understand to the message of this story. Sardis was a powerful, powerful city. It had only been conquered twice, and it was conquered both times because of just complacency. Uh, Croesus, you've heard the, some of you, if you're, you're, you're from the south, you're like me, you would normally say Croesus, but Croesus was the king, a mighty king, a powerful king. You've probably heard the saying or heard the tales as rich as Croesus before because this was a place where gold was in abundance. There are all kinds of archaeological digs there where they smelted and melted gold. We have, all, we have lots of gold coins from Sardis. It's one of the most well-attested archaeological digs that are around. But sitting on this Acropolis, there was one way up that armies would attack, but because he was so rich and so powerful, nobody could really attack them and win. They would just mow them down, and the backside is just sheer cliffs. It was conquered by Cyrus. You remember reading about Cyrus in the Old Testament in the Persian kingdom, but it was also conquered by Alexander the Great. And both times that Sardis was conquered, it was conquered because no one thought you needed to guard the strongest point of the city. No one thought you needed to guard those high cliffs to the Acropolis. And the Persian army, <clears throat> the Persian army actually had soldiers climb it straight up. I two or three times have been to these cliffs where people climb and I've watched and every time I've watched these people scale these cliffs with just their hands and their, their, their shoes and a little bag of chalk that they carry. I've often thought about this story and how it was conquered. So the Persian army at night, they came up and were able to come in and conquer the city. And then one time, Alexander just simply sent one man up because the guards were all sleeping and he was able to open the gates and Alexander's army then just devastated and conquered Sardis. And you just go, well, pastor, why are you giving me this geography lesson? Because if you understand that, the people of this city knew that. They had been conquered twice and you'll understand some of the imagery that's in this passage and you'll understand what the message was to the church but how it is applicable to us today. As Christ dictates his letter to John, and he tells him to write this letter to the pastor of the church in Sardis, he says, this is the message of the one who has the sevenfold spirit of God and the seven stars in his hands. Here you've got a real clear relationship of Jesus and the Holy Spirit to the church. You've just got this really clear representation of, of Jesus and the Holy Spirit. Remember, our God is one God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. But you, you see this real clear, uh, the sevenfold spirit of God that was prophesied about, of wisdom and knowledge and counsel and understanding and discernment. That's what he's talking about. You can almost, you get a picture of this also in Zechariah, I believe it's Zechariah chapter 14, if I remember correctly, where the sevenfold spirit of God is talked about. And what the menorah, those of you that are familiar with the menorah, you'll see a lot of them with Passover coming up. 
The menorah was a symbol of the Holy Spirit, the seven spirit of God. That's the reason, and we're not talking about seven different spirits, but the sevenfold manifestation of the spirit of God coming out of one candelabra, one bowl that fed it in seven different lights and what they represented. And so here you have Jesus saying he is the seven spirit of stars, but he's also holding those seven stars. He's holding us together. He is in the midst of the church. Remember the stars of the church. Jesus is with us tonight. And I think we ought to give him a hand of praise for that this evening. He is with us tonight. He holds us in his hands. He watches over us. I'm grateful that there are angelic presences and I'm grateful for angels, but we're never called to focus upon angels. We are called to focus upon the presence of the manifested God with us tonight as we worship him. And so thankful for angels, but I'm more grateful that we have the Holy Spirit with us this evening. Write this letter to the angel of the church in Sardis. This is the message from the one who has a sevenfold spirit of God in the seven stars. Seven represents completeness and perfection. That's why you, these numbers will become even more important as we work through the book of Revelation. The first readers would have caught all of this imagery, and, and each time we've come to some imagery or numerals, I've tried to understand it, and as I promised you last week, I believe the time we're finished with this series, you're going to go, I don't know why I never dug more deeply into the book of Revelation. It is a wonderful book that God promises a blessing to all those who read it and listen to it and do it. And when we understand what the symbolic, the symbols and the typology is, it will help us even more. God is a perfect God. God is a complete God. God needs nothing. God didn't create us because he needed us. And occasionally I've heard somebody, and I think they mean well, they're trying to express the love of God. And, and I think what they've done is just in trying to communicate, maybe they stretch it a little bit too much. They said, you know, God just wasn't happy until he could create human beings to love. Nothing could be further from the truth and nothing is really more blasphemous. God is happy and complete in himself. It's because God is love that God created us, but didn't create us to make him happy. I didn't marry Becky, as I've often said, to make me happy. My happiness is decided between God and myself. And when I'm happy in Christ, I can be happy with Becky. I can be happy in Michigan. I can be happy at Woodland. I can be happy wherever I am as long as I find my happiness in Christ. And so this number of perfection and completeness is very important. You'll see that as we go on through. Because you need to know when the church is being persecuted and as we read through some of the horrible things that have happened and some of the horrible things that will happen, you need to know that you will find happiness, you will find fullness, and you will be more than a conqueror through Christ Jesus. Because the one who holds you in his hands tonight is not an angel, it is the Lord, the seven spirit of God that is with you tonight. That's why I say we can swing across hell on a rotten corn stalk and say, come on, victory. Amen? That's why we have this confidence. It's not just a little catchy thing that we say. The second thing I want you to see here is that Jesus searches every heart. That's the, the point of bringing up the Holy Spirit. The Spirit of God searches the deep things of a man. The Spirit of the Lord searches the, the mind of God. It searches us. Deep calls unto deep. We looked at that in the very first message in this series. And the Spirit of God searches our hearts and knows what is there. Which, but to the Son, he says, your throne, O God, endures forever and ever. You rule with a scepter of justice. You love justice and hate evil. Therefore, God has anointed you, pouring out the oil of joy on you more than on anyone else. That's what he wants you to see right there. And so I think this is important to see that he searches our heart. He knows us. He knows what's going on in our lives and why that is so important. The third thing I want you to see under this relationship of Jesus and the Holy Spirit to the church is that a profession of faith must become a possession of faith. A profession of faith must become a possession of faith. These people had the right faith. These people were orthodox. These people were, this church, and if you'll let me just use my imagination a little bit, this is not said, but based on what we know about the New Testament church from the epistles that was written, I can imagine that when they gathered together, 
we have a number of the hymns that they sang. We have a number of those in the epistles. We have, we know that they sang the Psalms. We also know they sang spiritual melodies. I can imagine they, they, they sang maybe with a different rhythm, maybe a different meter, maybe a different tone than what we sing now, but they sang and they worshiped, they lifted their hands. I can't imagine that their doctrine was, was orthodox, and I can imagine that their orthopraxy, orthopraxy is the practice of right doctrine. I can imagine that their doctrine was right and their orthopraxy was right, that this was a well-organized church. But Jesus looks at this church, he says, I'm searching you because your profession of faith isn't a possession of faith. You've got it here, but you don't have it here. Let me say it again. You've got it here, a head knowledge, but you don't have it here, a heart knowledge that causes you to leave your gatherings and then go out into the world and practice your faith. Here's another little bit of history that you need to maybe know to kind of capture the Jewish people got along swimmingly in Sardis. And evidently, the early Christians, and the early Christians was an offshoot of Judaism. The early church considered themselves Jewish, by the way. Don't ever forget that. The early Christians still considered themselves Jewish. It was only as the gospel spread out to the Gentiles when the Jewish people were rejecting the gospel. But in this town, these Jews had prospered amazingly. One of the largest synagogues, ancient synagogues discovered in the world is in Sardis. It is the size of a football field. That is a large synagogue for people to gather in. And there's so much that's been preserved there and so much art that you can still see in there. It's just absolutely stunning. But evidently these Christians who would have considered themselves Jewish were getting along very well, not only with the city leaders, but they were getting along very well with the Jewish leaders. This was a church that wasn't being persecuted because this was a church that wasn't practicing their faith publicly. The Jewish leaders had known in the Roman, the Jewish leaders in the synagogues had known in the Roman kingdom that to get along with Rome, you had to be practicing your faith in private. You even had to offer a little bit of incense to Caesar. Many of them did. We know that. Those that didn't were persecuted just like early Christians were persecuted. So somehow or another, this rich, accommodating city that had suffered a horrible earthquake and was destroyed by the earthquake, and then Rome came in and took and rebuilt the city. They had built a temple there to Caesar because by this time, Caesar was demanding to be worshiped as a king. So, Pastor, what all does that have to do? Because a profession of faith is never enough. A profession of faith, praying the prayer and signing the card, it's kind of like some people I know who say, well, you know, I prayed when I was a child. They've lived like the devil ever since then. They don't love the Lord. They don't serve God, but they prayed a prayer when they was a child, or maybe they signed a card. If you've ever read Chuck Colson's book, and I've recommended this numbers of time, I'll recommend it again, Chuck Colson's book, Loving God. Chuck Colson talks about a guy in California that was a gangster that claimed to be a Christian. He went to a revival crusade, a big crusade, and he prayed the prayer and he signed the card and was still living as a gangster and still working and doing the things that he did. And so finally, when he was confronted about it, he said, well, you never told me I had to stop being a gangster to be a Christian. And if I've got to stop being a gangster, then I'm not going to be a Christian. You see, a profession of faith has to be a possession of faith, a faith that I'm willing not only to die for, but willing to live out, live for, and practice my faith. It doesn't mean that I become obnoxious. It doesn't mean that I become abrasive. But when I leave this place and I practice my faith, Paul wrote to young pastor Timothy, he says, Timothy, keep safe what has been entrusted to your care. Avoid the profane talk and foolish arguments of what some people wrongly call knowledge. For some have claimed to possess it, 
and as a result, they have lost the way of faith. God's grace be with you all. 1 Corinthians chapter 16 and verse 13. Be on guard, stand firm in the faith, be courageous, be strong. Revelation chapter 3, verse 3. Go back to what you heard and believed at first. Hold to it firmly. And notice what Jesus says to the church. Repent and turn to me again. Now, let me go back and just read you the very first verse. It's not, it's, you've got the, the passage in your outline, but just listen. I know all the things you do, and you have a reputation for being alive. This wasn't a church that wasn't doing something, but what they were doing may have been orthodox, but it wasn't right in practice. They were dead and had no clue they were dead. It was a dead church, and they had no clue that they were a dead church. It was a church that had died long ago, and Jesus says to them, you have a reputation, but in reality, you are dead. Brothers and sisters, it's kind of what happened, and I'm not throwing stones here. I'm just giving you a little bit of church history. It's kind of what happened went to the medieval church, when the Roman Catholic Church had, had, had left the very earliest, purest confession and profession of faith. And they weren't the Roman Catholic Church at the beginning, but they were Catholic. Catholic means universal, if we'll use lowercase c. They were, at that time, there was no denominations until later they became some splits after Constantine. But as they became enmeshed in false doctrine and in power plays and in corruption and immorality, that by the time men like Martin Luther and John Calvin came along and began to call the church to repentance, the church was dead, had a reputation. Doesn't mean there weren't some people that weren't alive in that church, just like we're going to see towards the end of the message. We just read it. There were some people that were still alive. They had not soiled their garments. They had not turned their backs. They loved the Lord. And God says to them, you're going to be blessed. I'm going to take care of you. But to the rest of you, you're dead. And God raised up men like Martin Luther. And they began to preach the gospel. They began to preach justification by faith, salvation by faith. They began to take apart this whole doctrine of, uh, of the, the Pope. They began to take apart the doctrines of purgatory. They began to take apart the doctrines that were just robbing people of their joy and their love. And the Protestant church experienced a great revival. And all of a sudden, there were Protestant believers that were being burned at the stake. There were Protestant believers that were being tied to stakes as the tide came in because they wouldn't uh, deny their faith. There were Protestant believers that were tortured to death on the rack. They professed a faith, but as time went on, the Protestant church became a corrupt church and a dead church. And God raised up, English history calls John Wesley one of the greatest Englishmen that ever lived. John Wesley's preaching is credited with saving England from total social and spiritual and governmental collapse because of the revival that took place. And there was an awakening. And today, sometimes people ask me if I'm Protestant, and I'll go, yes, I'm a Protestant, but, you know, we need to be clear about what I believe because so many Protestant churches today deny the inspiration of the Word of God, the veracity of the Word of God. They, derive, they, they deny the fact that there is only salvation through Jesus Christ, that there are many ways to God, and, and Jesus is just one of those ways. Brothers and sisters, hear me this evening. A profession of faith must be a possession of faith. And we must never, ever, ever compromise on such things as the inspiration of the Scripture, the virgin birth of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ, that men are not saved by good works, but we are saved by what Jesus did for us at the Calvary, at Calvary through faith in His name. We must never compromise that one day Jesus Christ is coming back again. So it's important because when you have orthodoxy, and I really hate using these kind of words, but orth not with orthopraxy, where you practice it, it always leads to deadness. And that's what had happened in this church very, very quickly.
The only enemy mentioned in this passage is the church. It's the only enemy mentioned. I know all the things you do and you have a reputation for being alive, but you are dead. Now maybe you understand the title on my message tonight. We have met the enemy and it is us. It's us. And so it's why it's important that we walk with the Lord daily, asking him to forgive us of our sins and daily examining in our heart. As I read about Sardis, Sardis is the model of inoffensive Christianity. Sardis is the model of inoffensive Christianity. If you could go ahead and put that slide up for me. Because nobody in Sardis was offended by the faith of the people in that church. <laughs> I have lots of friends in Downriver. I am grateful for the friendship that's been extended to me and the welcome to my family and the friendship to Becky and I. And Becky has lots of friends, and I'm sure you do too. There are some people, though, who do not like me, though, not because I'm not a likable person, but because there are some things that I won't compromise upon. I got a very, very nasty, nasty, mean-spirited letter because I wasn't a Christian and I was a wolf in sheep's clothing and I had led you astray because I preached that marriage is between a man and a woman and not between two other people. Now, prior to that message, they liked me. <laughs> but I offended them. And you may, I wasn't abrasive. I've reached out to them, loved them. No, now they won't have any more content. And that's, you know, you don't like that to happen. You don't want that to happen. But that's part of what happens. You see, when you practice your faith and you preach your faith, there's always going to be people who are offended by your faith as well as people who are encouraged by your faith. Jesus said, if they persecuted me, they're going to persecute you. And, and I can't really call that persecution. I, you know, it's not pleasant, but I can't call it persecution. Then on the other hand, a friend took a message, the same message I preached, took it to City Hall in Detroit, played it for a group of people who work in City Hall, two of them politicians, they listened to the message, very same message, and said to my friend, said, <clears throat> number one, we're surprised that there's an old white guy preaching like that. That was offensive. <laughs> number two, they said, I don't agree with him, but I would go listen to him because I felt loved in that message. And the reason I'm telling you that is you can confront error and heresy without being mean about it. People knew that Jesus loved them. And may it always be said of us in our possession of faith, even if what we believe is offensive, that they know we are Christians by our love. Can we give him a hand of praise for that tonight? Wake up means they have no idea that they're dead. This is a total shock, and this is a surprise to them. I mean, when missionaries came, they were willing to give them money. This was a well-to-do congregation. We know that. These were people with business interests. We know they came out of the Jewish community, and this was a very successful and prosperous Jewish community. But God says, wake up! I told you Sunday morning how tired I was coming into the weekend and I got up at 4.15 and 6.30 I could no longer hold my eyes open and I told Becky, be sure I wake up. She's had three alarms. You know, it's like an alarm clock going off. I read a story in the newspaper long ago that a family had a ticking alarm clock that went off twice a day in their wall and they spent several years before they took the clock out of the wall. You know, here's what I want you to know. It's mercy when Jesus comes and says, wake up. It's mercy when he says to me, Denny, wake up. 
That's the reason we sing songs sometimes on a Wednesday night, like, search me, O God, and know my heart, I pray. Try me, O Savior. It's because we want him to search our hearts. We want him to wake us up. He says to this church in verse 3, go back to what you heard. In other words, return, repent. That's what repent means, to turn around. Go back to what you heard and believed it first. What did they believe? That Jesus is Lord. But believing, now this, you, you got to get this, believing that Jesus is Lord, it is necessary then that you bear witness to Jesus. That's what Jesus taught us. So it's why I say to you, we must be a contagious Christian for Jesus Christ. You can't call yourself a Christian and not be willing to share your faith story. That doesn't mean you gotta go knocking on doors. There's nothing wrong with that. It's probably not a smart thing to do anymore. That doesn't mean you've got to just go out and confront everybody. You can put that slide up too, be a contagious Christ, a witness for Jesus Christ. You, it doesn't mean you've got to be obnoxious, but I'll tell you, if you practice your faith, people will want to know why you're practicing your faith. If you say grace in the cafeteria where you work at, Or if you say grace before you have a meal. I recently had a meal with a new friend of mine that having lunch with again next week. And um, he's not from a Christian background. and, And so he started to eat and I said, you know, I'm a follower of Jesus Christ. Do you mind if I pray over my meal uh, before I eat? And uh, he goes, oh, no, no, I'm sorry. He said, I've seen people do that. He says, pray out loud. (laughs) And I mean, how cool is that? I mean, there are people that, I mean, you and I probably grew up like that. And so I did, and I pray for his meal. And and I just asked the Lord to bless our food. I didn't ask him to, you know, about anything in particular about him, but just bless our food and thank the Lord that we had this opportunity to have lunch together. When I looked up, his eyes were moist, and he says, that was beautiful. He has already been looking up prayers and sending them to me and said, I thought you might like this prayer. You might want to pray this one. Isn't that cool? I mean, to me, this is what makes, this is fun. I mean, this is doing the stuff that Jesus called us to do, and it can be fun, and it can be joyful if we're just willing to be contagious so I've got a, basically a pagan sending me prayers. <laughs> For the light makes everything visible. This is why it says, now if I'm having lunch with somebody tomorrow. If you see me, that's not the pagan. This, this guy I'm having lunch with tomorrow is a pastor. So I just thought I'd clear that up. For the light makes everything visible. This is why it is said, Awake, O sleeper, rise up from the dead, and Christ will give you light. So be careful how you live. Don't live like fools, but like those who are wise. Read this sentence with me. Make the most of every opportunity in these evil days. Don't act thoughtlessly, but understand what the Lord wants you to do. And if you will ask the Lord, and if you will pray, Rather than thinking, I already know what to do. And that just bucks me to death when people say, well, I don't need to pray about. There are some things I don't need to pray about. I don't need to pray about what color socks to put on. I either own running socks, black socks, or brown socks. You know, know, my closet is very simple. Becky says I'm the most boring dresser in the world. (laughs) But for me, it's got to be simple. But when you pray, start your day not only saying, Lord, I want to know you better today than I knew you yesterday, but Lord, help me to be alert and aware when I can share your love with somebody today. Because, please get this, this is what Jesus is saying to this church. And periodically in church history, the church has failed to witness Episcopalian friend of mine in Augusta, Georgia said, Episcopalians don't witness, we just have baby Episcopalians. Losing that edge has really cost the Episcopal church. 
You cannot call yourself a believer without bearing witness to Jesus Christ. And again, you don't have to be offensive, but Jesus commands us over and over. He says, if you're ashamed of me, I'm going to be ashamed of you. He says, he says in the book of Matthew, if you confess me before men, I will acknowledge you before my Father. So you see, this is what he's getting at with this church. And that's the reason that I wanted to say they're not offensive and you want to be contagious. So what do you do? Invite the Holy Spirit then to strengthen, empower, and make you bold. Invite the Holy Spirit to strengthen, to empower, and make you bold. And I know for some of you tonight in this room, that's probably a frightening thing because when you've seen somebody invite the Holy Spirit, you've seen some weird stuff on TV or you've gone to some church where something weird is happening. Friends, when you read the New Testament, when I see what the Holy Spirit does in the lives of people, I want that same work in my life as well. I want that same boldness. I want that same power. I want to see sick people healed. I want that discernment that comes when you're talking to somebody. And I've had those moments when I don't know how I knew, but inside my heart, just not often, but those times when a name or something has come up and I've asked the person about it and I never say the Holy Spirit told me to because if anybody's going to look like an idiot, it's just going to be me. And I don't want to say God told me to tell you this, but I'll just say, you know, has this been a problem or an issue? And I've just seen that conviction sometimes or sometimes I said, has this been a challenge? And I've seen that encouragement come when they realize that the Lord knows all about them. Invite the Holy Spirit to empower you. Invite him to make you bold. Invite him to make you strong. That's why he could say these words. Yet there are some in the church in Sardis. Now who's saying this? Jesus who has a sevenfold spirit, who have not soiled their clothes with evil. They will walk with me in white, for they are worthy. All who are victorious will be clothed in white, and I will never erase their names from the book of life, but I will announce before my Father and his angels that they are mine. Let me kind of set this up for you. Do you remember when I told you about the Acropolis and the Necropolis? The Acropolis was the city of the living. The Necropolis was the city of the dead. And if you look at this drone flyover, you will see they were reminded every day by looking at the living and the dead. They were reminded every day because most of the people lived in the valley, not on the Acropolis. Fertile farmlands, beautiful river, the iron smelting, the, 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 the synagogue I'm telling you about was down in the valley. The, the gymnasium, the synagogue was built right beside the gymnasium, magnificent gymnasium that's there where pagan sacrifices were made as well. All of that's in the valley. So they looked and they saw to their left, they saw the Acropolis and to their right, they saw the Necropolis. So when Jesus says these words, you have a reputation for being alive, but you really are dead. There was something going on there. They understood this imagery. Then he tells them, if you'll notice carefully, he says, some have soiled their garments. And, 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 and Sardis was a place that was famous for dyeing its cloth. And what imagery would have come there was by compromising with the world, by compromising with worldly values, you soil your clothing. Clothing is always used is an illustration of character. And you're going to see this more. As you go through the Breck of Revelation, you're going to read more and more about white garments, a garment of white, a robe of white. White was the common ordinary. I mean, we think of a dress shirt today as being white. You want to wear a nice white dress shirt or, or something like that. But in those days, white was the everyday clothing. But white in the Bible represents your white clothing. It represents the purity of your character. And he says to these people who walk pure in character, all that are victorious, I will clothe them in white and I will never erase their names from the book of life. Beloved, listen, there was some in the church that were in danger of having their names blotted out of the book of life. 
Remember, I believe it's in Exodus 24 where God says to Moses, I'm going to blot them out of the book of life. And I know that there are people who will say, if you made that profession of faith when you were a child, but you've lived like hell since then, you're going to go to heaven. Friends, I beg to differ. I've said this for three weeks in a row. I'm going to say it again. Calvinists and Arminians find agreement on this. The Calvinists would say, if you live like that, you were never saved to begin with. And so, therefore, you won't go to heaven. You will go to hell. The Arminian says, you, you can start following Christ and then decide to turn away and not follow Christ and have your name blotted out of the book of life and turn away, fall away and go to hell. But here's the promise I want you to see. It's not for you to worry about having your name blotted out. The promise I want you to see is if you follow Christ, you will never live in sinless perfection. You will never live without making sin, without making sinful mistakes. You will sin less and less and less the longer you serve the Lord. But God will pull you through if you can stand the pull and, and God will not ever write, blot your name out of the book of life. Nothing can separate you from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus. Can we give him a hand of praise for that? And then finally tonight, and Jesus says he would come like a thief in the night to those who are sleeping. Matthew 24, he uses this phrase that he'll come like a thief in the night. Remember the walls I told you about in the beginning? Both times... Sardis was conquered at night because thieves came up where they thought they were strongest. Thieves came up and overcame the city. Jesus uses this imagery because complacency will lead you to sleep. Complacency will make you dull. Complacency will cause you to back off. Complacency will lull you into a place of security. Complacency will make you think everything's okay. Friends, we live in a day where we have to watch and be ready for we know not what hour our Lord is going to come. If they were called to live like that, in the days of Jesus, how much more are you and I called to live like that? If you don't wake up, I will come to you suddenly as unexpected as a thief. Well, here's what I would do. Here's what I have done when I look at this. Number one, I'd examine my life for gaps. I'm on your growth work now. I'd examine my life for gaps. Are there some gaps in how I live out my faith? I may believe the right thing, but am I practicing my faith? Number two, I would ask myself the question, am I further along in my Christian walk today than I was two years ago? Am I further along in my walk with Jesus? Am I growing? I mean, think back, look back. Where were you at two years ago? We should live, we should live on a plane that went like this. The reality is most of us live on a plane that goes like this. It's like plateaus, isn't it? And then occasionally, sometimes with those plateaus, we'll go, and then we have to fall and say, Lord, I'm sorry, and we have to climb up again. Jesus understands nothing can separate you, but the question is, look back on your life. Are you growing in Christ? Number three, Sardis tells me, I will never outgrow my need for forgiveness. This was a well-run church. You might would have said, wow, that's a well-oiled machine. I mean, they've got the praise band. They've got a charismatic preacher. They've got educational facilities. They've got it going on there at the First Church of Sardis. It looks like a place I really want to be a part of. That's why this message is so important. Because the church is made up of people like you and me. But the church has to have a voice in the pulpit and a voice in the small group leader and a voice on the board and the voice in every home that says, we don't just believe this, we live this. If you don't live it, you don't believe it. I hold firmly to my faith in Christ. 
Lamentations 3 and verse 40. I'm not going to read every verse here, but Lamentations 3 and verse 40 says, let's examine our ways and test them and let us return to the Lord. In other words, I need to search my heart. So ask yourself this question tonight. Where are the weak spots or the gaps in my faith? Is it prayer? Is it Bible study? Is it witnessing? Is it being willing to forgive those that have hurt you? Is it, have you become proud? I mean, you've done great. You've accomplished a lot. But are you learning to walk in humility? Evidently, Sardis was not a very humble church. As a matter of fact, let me bring you back to the richest Croesus. This was a rich church. Where are you serving at? Do you need to wake up? And then, where are you strong in your faith? Revelation 3, 2, strengthen what little remains, for even what is left is almost it. There was something good in this church. And God says, start there. I love the book about strength finders and finding your strength. I love the story that the author opens up that book with about Rudy. Couldn't play football, went four years to Notre Dame and they made a whole movie about him, you know, not being able to play football and, and his last year, last quarter, last play of the game, Rudy gets to play football. <laughs> and the author goes, what would it have been like if Rudy had gotten involved in something he was strong in and really good at? You think he'd had a better experience in college? I mean, what are you good at? There's what you begin with. You don't begin with your weaknesses. You begin, God says, strengthen what little remains. So what and where do you enjoy serving Christ at? Would you like to be a small group leader? Would you like to work with children? Would you like to take your faith as one of the men in our church does at Flat Rock High School and, and he, he, he coaches basketball and he's just an inspiration to the students there? Are you like one of the wrestling coaches down at Woodhaven High School, Trey Hancock, that loves Jesus and is a passionate follower of Jesus? Where do you like? It doesn't have to be here 24101 Van Horn, it can be anywhere, but where and what do you enjoy doing for Christ? What do I need to let go of? Sometimes there's some things I just need to say, the time is up. And number seven, what's God been telling me to do? And now I know that I'm getting just a little bit mystical there, but let me explain that like this. When I read the Bible, there are times that the Holy Spirit really convicts me. There are times when the Holy Spirit, I'm reading the Scripture, and all of a sudden, I can see it in my mind. And I know that's the Lord talking to me. And I don't have to come out and go, you know, the Lord said, I think, Rick, you've been with me all 19 years. I think in 19 years, I've only said three times that. As a matter of fact, I know in three times only. One was just recently where I had that vision the Lord showed me of things being shaken and fruit and limbs falling. And I think that's the time that we're living in. It's going to be a time of harvest. It's going to be a time of pruning as well. Only three times I've ever done that. But it doesn't mean that God hasn't spoken to me more. But I don't need to power up. I don't need to amp up to get credibility for what I believe by saying the Lord says. You don't either. You need to trust God's talking to you. God speaks to you when you pray. God speaks to you when you read his word. <laughs> God may have spoken to you in this message tonight. I sure hope so. God may speak to you in a song. Just listen. And what's he saying to you? And write it down and begin to act upon it. And then finally, live ready. Live ready for the imminent return of Jesus. He's coming back. Call it the rapture. Call it the second coming. We'll get into more of that, but live ready. Live ready. When I first started learning to share my faith, one of the questions they taught me to say was, if you should die tonight, do you know that you'd go to heaven to be with the Lord? I don't use that question anymore. But I remember 
some young people coming to my house and I was washing the car and I knew what they were doing. They witnessed to me. I mean, I was in a pair of shorts and a t-shirt and I was wet and sweaty and they just went through the whole deal and I was like, okay, okay, all right. And then they got to the end and says, if you die tonight, do you know that you go to heaven to be with Jesus? And I went, yes. They go, let me ask it again. Are you sure if you die tonight, you go to heaven to be with Jesus? I go, yes. And then I started laughing and I told them I was your pastor. They go, they said, they told us not to come to this house. <laughs> Friends, live ready. He's coming again. Amen. Hallelujah. Give the Lord a hand of praise. Come on, victory. Jesus, I love you. I'm going to ask you to bring your notes and let's just come and spend a little time in the altar and maybe work through your growth work and let's spend some time in prayer tonight and then I'll dismiss us in just a few minutes. Hallelujah. Hallelujah. Come on down front. your right spirit within me Lord, we thank you for the word and we thank you for the services. We thank you for those who lead us in worship and music. God, we thank you for all the things that you've given us. Tonight, Lord, I'm asking for something so subjective for all of us. Oh God, touch our hearts by your Holy Spirit. Give us a fresh outpouring of the Holy Spirit upon our lives. Oh, Father, forgive us, Lord, for we have allowed ourselves to wither on the vine. Jesus, revive us or else we surely shall die. God, refresh us or we surely shall, Lord, be blown away. Oh, God, in the name of Jesus, Lord, we cast aside everything. We let go of everything. Lord, that has compromised our faith. I pray that Woodland will always be a living, breathing expression of the body of Christ. And I have no reason to think otherwise, Lord. I'm thankful for the work of your spirit in our church. I'm thankful for the work, oh Lord, that you're doing in our community through Woodland. Father, we want to be sharper. We want to be more spiritually aware. Hallelujah.
I want to see you. I want to see you. Open the eyes of my heart, Lord. Open the eyes of my heart. I want to see you. I want to see you. See you high and lifted up. to see that Lord you walk in and out among the churches and it's you that's walking among us and holding us in your right hands Lord it is you that brings the fullness of your Holy Spirit to us God would you open our eyes and minds to the fact that we lack no good thing that you've given us everything we need for life and godliness. With that caveat, to be able to enjoy it, Lord. We enjoy living in the Spirit. We enjoy walking in the Spirit. We be, enjoy being used by the Spirit. And so I ask you, Lord, tonight, God, touch our hearts. Lord, may we daily come to you and say, Father, have mercy upon me. Father, have mercy upon me, a sinner, and forgive me of my sins. God, have mercy and give us the grace so we can forgive those who have sinned against us. Have mercy, Lord, so that instead of expecting to be served, we step out and serve, Lord. Have mercy, Lord, so that in the good success you give us, we never think that it is our hand that has done this, but it is the Lord who has blessed us and given us the power to prosper and to do good. And oh, Lord, I ask you, show us where we're strong at tonight. 
Show us, Lord, where we're strong and help us, Lord, to strengthen it even more and to use that strength for your glory and honor. And Jesus, I thank you that we have come unto Mount Zion, the city of the living God. And gathered around you are not the dead, but are gathered around you are the saints who have died in this life but have passed on, O oh Lord, into the presence of God. We have come into the living city of God and we are surrounded by a cloud of witnesses. You are not the God of the dead. You are the God of the living. Lord, all of those who died in faith. And so I pray when we come to this Acropolis of faith, the mountain of God, that we will realize we're just a part of something so much greater. What you have built and all of those who've come before. And one day, Lord, in your timing, we will join them. We ask you all of this tonight in the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, I pray. And everybody said, amen, amen, and amen. Give the Lord a hand of praise tonight. Hallelujah. <laughs> Hallelujah. God answers prayer. I love you. I can't wait to see you Sunday morning for Palm Sunday. We're going to talk about hope. God bless you. Good night.